Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We're going to jump into things this evening. We've got a lot to cover, so I really want to just kind of get right to it. Uh, Last week, if you were here, you'll know we started a new mini-series called Why the Church? Why the Church? I find that um, for many people, especially in my generation, the millennial generation and younger, uh, as people do what's called deconstructing their faith, uh, one of the primary reasons for the deconstruction beginning is the church has let them down in some way. Um, There's been uh, leadership failure within the church. There's been manipulation of scripture within the church. There's been an overemphasis uh, on politics in the church. And so what we're doing is we're just getting back to this, well, why, like, Okay, I know why people reject the church, but why the church? Like, what does the scripture say about why the church? So um, last week we asked that question, and uh, the the first answer we gave to that was, why the church equipping? The church exists to equip. If you see the church existing for other reasons, it may get confusing. If you see, I, I see a lot of people in their kind of road to deconstruction, they go, well, the church was never there for me. It was never a family for me. It was never community for me. Those are great things, and the church will likely be those things if you first view the church for equipping. It exists to equip. Um, So if you missed that message, go back and listen to it. I really think that these three messages that I'm going to give, uh, the second one being this evening and the third one being next uh, Sunday, are going to be important for the shape of this church to come. Like, where is this church going in the future? What's going to happen with this church? So um, please go back and listen to it. Now, if the church, like we talked about last week, is it exists for equipping, what are we being equipped for? What are we actually being equipped for? And uh, I'm going to talk about uh, two reasons, two things I think we're being equipped for. One I'm going to talk about this evening. Uh, the next week, uh, next week I'm going to talk about the other one. But for tonight, turn your Bibles to First Peter, First Peter, uh, chapter two. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, within the first few pages of the Bible, there's a table of contents. And uh, you can go there. You can find out where First Peter is. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny book, uh, a letter um, at the very, practically at the very end of your Bible. So all the way over to the right. And we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2 and uh, in verse 4. Now, what we're about to read is Peter. Now, you think, like, who's Peter? Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's one of the 12. He's one of the disciples who knew Jesus uh, maybe even best. Uh, maybe him or John, you know, they were like the, 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 the closest to uh, Jesus. And he's the one who I think most of us can relate with the most. He's the one who, he, he denies Jesus, not once, not twice. He denies Jesus three times. Jesus then comes. Uh, Mariah gave a great message on this a couple weeks ago. Jesus comes to him and basically reinstates him into ministry and into fishing for men, not fishing for fish. And so Peter, who knows, knows Jesus so well, he writes this letter really giving a Um, And and I want you to take note of this. He's giving a cosmic explanation of what the church is. 
It, like, if you get a nosebleed because we're so high up in altitude because of this guy, it's his fault, not mine. He's like, I'm giving you a cosmic level theological view of why the church. And we'll get a little bit more practical as we go. But it's important to know that, that Peter isn't writing to a specific church. He's not like to the church in such and such place. He actually begins this letter by writing to uh, what he calls elect exiles who are scattered throughout these various provinces in the Mediterranean. So he's writing to not just one church, not a couple of churches, he's writing to anybody who is an elect exile. Culturally, does it feel like Christians are a little bit of elect exiles right about now? He's writing this to us. Okay, so look down at your Bibles. Why the church? What is the church? Here's what he says in verse four. As you, believers, come to him, speaking of Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's a short passage tonight, but it is an incredibly full passage. And there are really three phrases that I want to look at here that explain what the church is. And each of these phrases that we're going to look at this evening has historical and theological significance. One of my professors uh, and the guy who founded, uh, started the Bible Project, which many of you guys are probably familiar with, Tim Mackey, he's given an, a great metaphor for what these phrases are. Are and what he's it's it's a it's a internet metaphor. He basically says these phrases or specific words within the scriptures, they act as hyperlinks, like hyperlinks on on the internet. Where if you click into the phrase or you click into the word and you look at it closer, a whole new page with an entire world of meaning explodes off the text, off the pages of the Bible. You're like, oh, I never knew that that could mean that or that could mean this. And each of these phrases in this passage does just that. Okay, so look back down at your Bibles. The first phrase is this. Verse four, as you come to him. That's the first phrase. You're like, where is this, where is this going to link to? As you come to him. Now, Peter assumes, from the very outset, he assumes that the church's job, all of you scattered elect exiles, the church's job is to be near God. From the very beginning, the church's role is to be close to God. As you come near, everybody say near. As you come near to him, okay? Now, this phrase is a direct link to a story from Exodus 19, and in fact, it's actually the story where we even get our name, Saints Hill. Now, in Exodus chapter 19, we don't have time to go there, so I'll summarize it. You can jot it down. You can go there later, okay? In Exodus 19, uh, the Israelites are, have come out of Egypt, and they've come to Sinai. You guys remember Sinai? Sinai is this mountain uh, in the middle of the desert, essentially, uh, in the Middle East, where, uh, if you remember, Moses comes down from Sinai after meeting with God with Ten Commandments on two stone tablets, right? Well, something else happens there as well. And what happens is that God invites all of Israel. He says to all of Israel, finally I got my nation free from slavery. All of Israel, I want you to come up the mountain, Mount Sinai, so that you can be near me. I want you to come up the mountain so that you can be to me and here's the key phrase, a nation of 
priests. Now, um, if you know the story, you'll know what happens is that Israel doesn't go up the mountain. In fact, they hear the Lord, they hear Yahweh, and they, go, they get scared. And they go, I, I'm not sure that we should go up the mountain. They have this fear of God in them that keeps them distant. How many of you guys understand? There's a fear of God that draws you near, and there's a fear of God that keeps you distant. And there's this fear of God that keeps them distant. And instead of being a nation of priests, they become a nation that has some priests. It's this tragic moment in the story of Israel, and it's really, it's a shrinking from privilege and a shrinking from duty. So what does Peter say? As you come to him. As you come to him. Peter is saying, church, your job is to be what Israel wasn't. Your job, you have one job. This is your job. Your job is to come into his presence. Your job is to enjoy his presence, the privilege of it, to carry the responsibility of it as you come near to him, to be entirely focused on the presence of God. That's the first phrase. Next phrase, look back down at your Bible. So as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's the phrase. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, what I want you to see is this. When you're a part of the church, like think of, like you think built, that sounds awfully similar to equipping. There's a, there's a, a growth happening. There's a, um, a gathering of resources together. Um, and, and notice the building materials here. It's you. <laughs> you're the building materials it's like, what is God doing with his church? Well, he's getting people and he's basically stacking them together so they can house him. They're living, you're living stones. Have you ever thought about yourself? Like, I'm just a living stone. Probably back in the 70s in the Jesus People movement, there's a lot of people, there's t-shirts made, living stones. Um, but like, what's the hyperlink there? Like, what, what is that living stones? Where have we heard about stones before? <laughs> Um, you could think of the precious stones that are mentioned in Eden. Like if you're doing biblical theology, you're going from Genesis down through this, the entire meta narrative. Like, okay, there's stones in the garden. Okay, eh, maybe. There's the stone, like I just did like a, a, a search in the Bible for the word stone and like all these things popped up. Uh, there's the stone tablets. Well, could be God's writing a new law on his people. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that, certainly the prophets confirmed that. But, but here's where my mind went first. And it, I'm not saying this is the definitive, this is the hyperlink or whatever. You know, the, the, look, the Bible's a web. <laughs> connect, things connect all over the place. Um, but, but, but what I thought was, that reminds me of Mark 13. And in Mark 13, Jesus is talking with his disciples as they walk past the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen the temple. It is huge, or at least where the temple was, the Temple Mount. It's, it's massive, Okay. And Jesus is walking around the temple, and you know what his disciples say? Isn't this temple amazing? We really are the chosen people. We really do have God amongst us. And Jesus says, oh, there's a day coming where not one of those stones will be left on one another. Stones. Not one of those temple stones Materials will be left on one another. They'll all be torn down. Now, 
what is he talking about? Well, he was speaking about, it was prophetic. He's speaking about the destruction of the temple, which happens in 70 AD. Rome is tired of Jerusalem, kind of doing their thing, and they ransack Jerusalem, and it actually happens. Here's a, here's a picture, a depiction of uh, the fall of Jerusalem, essentially, the siege of Jerusalem, and the temple being destroyed. The entire temple is destroyed. Uh, it, it's a cataclysmic event for Israel. In all of Israel's history, Babylonian exile, uh, the, the exile uh, from, the, from the Assyrians. Never was the temple destroyed. Rome comes to town and the temple's destroyed. It's horrific. It is the worst thing that could happen for a Jew. So, so Jesus is so cavalier. Walking by the temple, not one of those stones will be left on one another. What is he saying? This is so key. This is so key. And, and, it, and it really... This is so powerful. Please pay attention. Jesus is saying that the solution to the cultural and religious collapse of a nation, sound familiar? Is spiritual building in individual lives. You're like, where is our, I've had these conversations like, what's happening to our society? What's happening to our culture? We need to get out there and fight. We're going to talk about this next week. Peter's like, oh, oh, yes, I remember that conversation with Jesus. You are the ones who are being built into living stones. The collapse of Jerusalem, the fall of the temple, the solution to religious and societal collapse is you becoming the house of God. Next phrase. What does it say? It says this. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to, this is like, totally hyperlinked, to be a holy priesthood. Remember, come up the mountain and be to me a nation of priests, to be a holy priesthood. Now, this really is the main theme of the entire passage. I believe that it was God's intention to have a nation of priests, but because of Israel's fear of God's presence, they became a nation with priests. So Peter's like, it's you, the church, you are to be the new priesthood. You are all priests. There, there aren't, we do this in, it's religion. It's wrong. We, we do this thing where we go, pastors are priests. Deacons are priests. Elders are priests. No. Peter says, as you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to all the believers scattered throughout the Mediterranean. Are they all qualified? Have they gone to seminary? No. You are being built into a spiritual house. You are to be a holy priesthood. You are a priest. It's your job. You're like, little old me? You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I just did. God does. And he's like, you're a priest. So do you believe it? See, like, what is the church? The church is a holy priesthood. Like, why does the church matter? Because we need priests. We are a culture that needs spiritual representatives that stand between people and God and try to work for reconciliation between the two. So what does this mean? What what do all these phrases combine to mean? Well, it means this. The church is two things at once. The church is both the priests and the temple. Isn't that fascinating? The church is both priests and temple. 
See, and, and this is so significant because if the church is the new temple, think the temple where God dwells, then we carry his presence wherever we go. There's no building. There's no special location. No, no, no. You are the building. So if you're the building, then you're the temple, you carry God with you. He dwells amongst you. And if the church are priests, if you are a priest, then like priests, our whole lives exist to bring about relationship between God and people. Nothing else. No other program. No other method. No, 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 no program is going to be enough. It's just about relationship. That's what your whole, your whole mission is in life. So, so here, here's the question that we're answering tonight. Why the church? And you're going to see how I get there, I promise. Why the church? The church exists for revival. The church exists for revival. Next slide. I think we have a, a slide for this. Yeah. The church exists to host God's presence so, and so, so he can revive a place. The church exists to host him. You're being built into living stones. You're a holy priesthood so that God can revive a place. Because here's the reality. God's presence means revival. You're like, how do we get revival? It's like, I've heard of like this awesome band that we could have come. No, 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 forget the band. You need his presence. You need his presence. It's like, I've heard of this one speaker. They wrote this incredible book. No, no more books. You need his presence. You need his presence. This is what St. Hill is designed for. Like, if you've been around for a while, you know this is in our heart. Like, this is what our heart beats for. Our heart beats for revival. This is what we, like, I remember telling people when we were planting the church, like, yeah, we just believe that revival is going to hit this valley and it's going to spread to the rest of the United States. And people would be like, <laughs> what? I'm sorry, come again? Now, here's the crazy thing is that when we came here, we met with people who had lived here for like 50 plus years. And they're like, there's a prophetic word about a church that will be planted and they're going to bring about revival that's going to spread to the rest of the United States. And you're like, really? You had that too? Because I thought I was crazy and I was beginning to believe what everybody was thinking about that. But this is like totally in our blood is, is seeing uh, cultural re renewal through individuals becoming living stones and priests. So, so here's the question. What do we mean by revival? Because some of you are like, revival, that sounds awesome. I love revival. And some of you are like, oof, there's a lot of baggage from like the 1900s and revival. Like, what do you mean by revival? Uh, here's a simple definition. Uh, next slide. Revival is people coming back to the life they were designed to live. Very, very simple. So like, if you need to take a photo, write it down. Like, if you're like, what is revival? Revival is people, individuals, coming back to the life they were designed. Specific word, not just like a fluffy millennial word. No, God designed them to live a specific life, an Edenic lifestyle, if you will. And, and so revival is bringing people back to that. Like, you even think about the design of the temple in Leviticus. And you're like, why are they designing the temple? And they're always talking about like these decorations that, that, that look like, you know, fruit or they, they look like flowers or uh, there, there's, there's this kind of nature infusion into the temple. Why? Well, the temple was designed to reflect the design of Eden. Like when God's telling them how to design the temple, he's, it, it looks a lot like Eden. It looks a lot like Eden. Even Ezekiel picks up on this in his prophecy about the temple, a river flowing from it. And it's like, man, that looks like a garden. What's going on? See, like, here's what's going on. 
If the church does what it is designed to do, the church will become Eden for a world that is in desperate need of being reconciled with their father. It's going to be like, if a church does what it's designed to do, it becomes a place where people meet God. That's the only job. Like, there's so many things the Lord wants to do, but like, and it's wonderful, beautiful. We'll do a lot of things, I'm sure, down through the years. But, but here's the main thing. Are people meeting God? Like, are they meeting God? That's what we are designed to be, a, a mini Eden. <laughs> You're being built into a temple. What does the temple look like? It looks like Eden. You're designed to be Eden. And what happens when people get to Eden is they come back to life, to live the life they were designed to live. It's revival. So, so practically, you're like, okay, that sounds nice, but what does it practically look like? Well, practically, revival often looks like a few things. It looks like an awareness of God taking hold of an entire place. It's like people are interested in God that weren't interested in God before. They're like, I think, you know, I, there's so many, um, so many voices in our culture that hate God, and I, I always just, my prayer is like, I pray that you doubt your doubt. Like, I just pray that you doubt your doubt. And, and like, just maybe, like, what if he is real? And so in revival, people are like, man, man, I think God is, could be real. And then what happens is repentance of sin and salvation. Revivals are always marked by this. We're going to talk about this in a moment. But revivals are always marked by people repenting of sin and, and, and saying, the way that I'm living has been more influenced by the serpent than by you. And I got serpent stuff all in my life, and I don't want it anymore. It's killing me. I want to come back to life. Uh, um, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out on people. We see this frequently, where, and even some of you probably experienced this tonight. Austin, thank you, wherever, there you are. Austin um, led this so well in, in, in our, right after worship. Just ask, inviting the Holy Spirit, and some of you probably even experienced a sense of the Holy Spirit in your, in your body or in your mind, uh, and, and that's just an evidence of his presence being there. And, and then there's uh, character and family change. People actually change, and, and in revival, they start coming back to life, and so they no longer fear the things they once feared. His love casts it out, and they're able to walk in freedom, and they don't manipulate people like they used to. So there's this character change that takes place. And then lastly, cultural renewal happens. And you actually see culture change. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week because I think when we read that, a lot of us will think politics and it doesn't really have much to, to do with that. So next week. Okay. Um, because people, in revival, because people are not being connected to ideas or formulas or systems, but instead they're being connected to God's presence, People's hearts are at peace. Love becomes the primary motivator. Faith rises. Healings happen. It's, the, it's like what I was made for. I'm like, just wherever, I don't care where it is. It could be the most bleak, you know, landscape, the most bleak town. It doesn't matter. If revival's happening, I want to be a part of it. That's my heart. I know that's the heart of the leadership here. And, uh, and much of what I just described, we're experiencing. Like over this past year, we've experienced almost, well, all of that practically. Uh, um, so, so why the church? The church exists to return humans to Eden, or in a word, the church exists for revival. That's why. Now, now here's the thing. Maybe you're like, man, that sounds so good. I, I want that to happen in my town, in my life. That sounds incredible. But, but why do we often fall short of revival? <laughs> like, why 
I don't know if you've ever been a part of uh, movements or churches that just kind of fade or they stop or there seems to be this momentum in the spirit and then all of a sudden something happens. You're like, I don't even know if I can put language around that. But it just ended. Like, why? Why did that stop? Um, is it just that the church can't get it together and if we could all just get on the same page and all push in the right direction then, then maybe we'd see more renewal happening? Why can't the church get it together? Well, I think the key to the sustaining and welcoming of revival, to hosting his presence well, if you will, is in verse five. Look back down at your Bibles. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Here's the key. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want to put forth to you this evening that the neglecting of spiritual sacrifice within the church and the focus on auxiliary side issues is the primary reason for the church not hosting revival himself. So right now you should be going, okay, well, what are the spiritual sacrifices? Let's do them. Okay, what are spiritual sacrifices? Well, I want you to think, like, even that word's a little bit of a hyperlink, if you will. Let's click on it. Um, Spiritual sacrifices, priesthood, like what is this talking about? Well, it's talking about the Levitical priesthood. It's talking about Israel's priests and the sacrifices that they uh, would do for the people of Israel. Now, what role did these sacrifices play? Well, oftentimes, these sacrifices existed to be pleasant aromas to Yahweh. They existed to keep close God and his people. That's their purpose. Now, there are five types of sacrifices uh, in the Levitical or in the temple code. We have an infographic here. Here you go. Okay, so it's a lot. Maybe take a picture of it. You can look at it later because it's kind of interesting. What I want you to focus on on these five sacrifices is on the left-hand side, the type of sacrifice, and then on the right-hand side, the significance. So we're just going to walk through these. Um, this is just was totally fascinating to me. Uh, okay, so the first kind of sacrifice is a burnt offering, a burnt offering. Um, the elements, like what are they burning? Bulls, rams, male goats. Sorry, animals, so glad for Jesus. Uh, and the significance of it is this. It signifies propitiation. You're like, what is that word? It signifies sin being taken care of, essentially, and for complete surrender, devotion, and commitment to God. It's like, I know I've sinned, and my, <laughs> I love this, my vandalism on your shalom my taking a hammer to the window that is creation through my sin requires sacrifice. And so the people of Israel would actually, they'd watch as the life of an animal would be taken from that animal, realizing that they in fact actually deserved that for what they had done to God's world. We've lost this sense and we need to regain it. Uh, second time type of sacrifice. This one's a little bit nicer. The grain offering so it's flour, bread, grain made with olive oil. These are valuable things in the ancient world. Um, and, and here's the significance. It signifies thanksgiving for first fruits. It's like, you're like, I got to take care of sin. I also, I, there's somebody to thank. <laughs> and I need to thank you for the grace of exist, the common grace of existing in this abundant world. Uh, there's another kind of sin offering. Uh, this one was made by one who had sinned unintentionally or was unclean in order to attain purification. Um, so the, the Levitical law, we don't have time to go into it too much uh, or really at all, but just briefly, um, there's a difference between being unclean and, and, um, 
in violating or, or, or uh, yeah, violating essentially God's law. And so um, there's different kinds of sacrifices for that. that. That's one of the ones for that one. There's the guilt offering. This is made by a person who had either deprived another of his rights or had desecrated something holy. This is just, talk about like awesome. Like God actually believes like, hey, you have freedoms and liberties and dignity as a human and somebody shouldn't remove those from you. And so there's an offering for that. And then lastly, there's the peace offering also called the fellowship offering. Uh, and this just symbolizes fellowship with with God. It's awesome. It signifies thankfulness for a specific blessing. Um, you know, it offers a ritual expression of a vow. I think oftentimes people are doing this here at church. You're like, oh my goodness, this, you know, I've, for the past month, the past year, past week, I've totally been off with you, Lord, and I'm just vowing to be back with you. And I think, I think that happens a lot. It symbolizes general thankfulness. Um, so out of all of these five sacrifices, I really think there's three main themes, three main almost types of, of sacrifices that I believe are to be the focus of the church in order to host God well. You're like, how did the priests keep the fires lit? How do the priests keep revival taking place? How do we make this a hospitable place for God to want to dwell? And I, I think there's really three main themes in these sacrifices. Uh, spiritual, how do we like translate these to spiritual sacrifices? Well, the first is this. They're sacrifices that confess sin. That's the first kind of sacrifice that we see up there. It's like there's these sacrifices that confess sin. And so I still think there are sacrifices for us to make spiritually of confession of sin. Here's the main point. A pure house is important to God. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, Yahweh leaves the temple of Jerusalem. He leaves the temple. He shows Ezekiel. He's like, I'm leaving the temple. And the reason for him leaving the temple is that there has been an idol that has been set up in the temple. Asherah has been set up in the temple. And Ezekiel has this vision of all the elders and leadership of Israel bowing down and worshiping and loving on this idol in the temple. And, and Yahweh's like, and that's why I'm gone. What does this mean for us? It means that as temple stones, we should find places where we have idols and sin in our lives and we should confess those things. We should, we should be honest with those things. Sin is real. <laughs> Despite what our culture says, it exists. And, and there are things that are wrong. And so it's our role as priests to bring those things to the altar so that they can be consumed by God's love and forgiveness. Like we don't have to kill an animal anymore. There's already been a sacrifice, and so we get to go, and it's just total joy. It's like, oh, get me free, Lord. <laughs> get me free. Here, here's my sin, and here's what I've been. I have been, like, to confess. Like, what is confession? Confession isn't simply saying where you've acted wrongly or you've believed incorrectly. Confession is confessing what you do believe instead, what you will do instead, that you choose to align your life, not with serpent stuff, but with Yahweh stuff. So here's what it looks like. You're like, how do I confess? What you, what you say is you say, Yahweh, God, here's what I've done. And I'm not gonna beat around the bush. I intended to do this. I manipulated here. I watched this thing here. I did this to that person there. I stole this here. I've taken, I've been wrong. I've done it. I am the man, in the words of Nathan. And I don't wanna be I don't want to be influenced by the serpent like I've been. And so I choose you. That's what you say. You say, I'm tired of the serpent having his way in my life. And I recognize the lies I believe and I choose to believe you instead. That's whole life 
confession. And, and this is really one of the hallmarks of revival, as was noted earlier, but from a, from a book I read on the history of the Welsh revival in the early 1900s, here's what the, um, the biographer, if you will, wrote. He said this, professing Christians broke down before God and began to remove hindrances in their lives. They committed themselves to full surrender to Christ and the reception of the Spirit in his fullness. It's like, this has marked revivals for years. Is people repenting of their sin. We host him by being honest with him about sin and aligning ourselves with his ways over the serpents. Here's the thing, he'll come back into the temple. He's like, oh, I love, that's my temple. Just, just, let's get the idol out. Let's get the idol out. I want free reign. Uh, secondly, the, the type of sacrifices we see, the spiritual sacrifices are these, sacrifices that celebrate and thank. Um, one of the hallmarks of Saints Hill in the way that we think about revival is in our commitment to testimony and celebration over sentimentality and striving. You're like, what? Uh, the way that we think about revival, we have a commitment to testimony and celebration over sentimentality and striving. Here's what I mean. There are two pitfalls when, when there's a group of people who want revival that you can fall into. The first pitfall is sentimentality about the past. Oh, those good old days, we had an amazing revival and it just probably won't happen again because look at culture. Sentimentality about the past. Or the other pitfall is striving for the future. We're not experiencing revival, we just need to pray more. We just need everybody to contend more. There's somebody in here with unconfessed sin. I just know it. If, if, if they just confessed, we'd have revival. I've, I've been in those meetings. It's not fun. And, and, and what this leads to is this leads to a temptation to program revival. It's like if we just have the right plan, if we have the right evangelistic campaign with the right discipleship strategy, the right prayer night, with the right songs, Jake, then we will get revival. So here's the sacrifice. You're like, what's the sacrifice of being grateful? Well, the sacrifice is this. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in this little thing here. I recognize it. I won't look past it and long for the big thing. I'll acknowledge the small thing you've done. I love your movement in my people no matter how small. I won't tell you how to revive a place or how you have to do what we want you to do. I will come to you and I will celebrate every little thing that you're doing amongst us. We have to remember, remember the story of, the, of the, the, the loaves and fish? It is right after Jesus gives thanks that they multiply. It is a kingdom principle. Thankfulness multiplies because thankfulness recognizes and honors the source of all things good. Like, phones out, okay? Photo is so important that we get this. We have to understand this. It's a kingdom principle that thankfulness multiplies because thankfulness recognizes and honors the source of all things good. When you honor what God does, it's like a signal to God that you want more of the same thing. You're like, I won't look past the little thing. I love whatever you're doing. And so as we sacrifice with thanksgiving, regardless of what we're seeing around us, as we sacrifice with thanksgiving, we sacrifice our forms and our methods and our urgency in order to remain in step with him. 
It's like, God, we need revival right now. It's like, dude, he's got like a million year plan. (laughs) And like, we're staying in step. And he brings us in and out of seasons, testing what we can handle. The blessing, his blessing comes with weight. Testing what we can handle so that he doesn't pour himself out into a vessel that will crack and just leak all, you know, leak it out. Lastly, lastly, we got to keep, keep on going. Here we go. Okay, lastly, spiritual sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices host him? Well, sacrifices that reveal surrender. We use this term a lot, surrender. It's a churchy term. Uh, what is surrender? Well, like, imagine a gun battle, like an old Western gun battle. And uh, imagine you got one guy who's pinned down, and there's all these other gunfighters that are around him. Bullets are whizzing past, you know, crushing into the adobe behind him or whatever. And he's like out of ammo. He checks. No, he doesn't have any more, any more bullets. And what does he have to do? At that point, he has to surrender. <laughs> he has to wave the white flag. He has to come out with his hands up. So, so think about that image and think about what is surrender specifically in a church? Here, here it is. Surrender in the church is I'm willing to give up what I hold dear for my own project so that you can use it for your project. I'm willing to give up what I hold dear for my project and what I'm building so that you can use it for your project and what you're building. Whether that's reputation. Some of you, you're like, I mean, the rubber's hitting the road culturally. You're going to experience hatred and even possible persecution for being a Christian. And your reputation could be ruined. Are you ready? I'm willing to give up reputation if it means it builds your project. Money, it's a huge one for me. Weak, weak area for me, money. I'm a planner, I'm the wise one. I'm like, you know, like, yeah, I get it. I'm willing to give up my privilege that I have for my project for yours. Uh, it could be understanding. This is another big one. God does mysterious things and I'm willing to give up my understanding, my need to understand in order for you to do what you wanna do in order to attain, obtain you in this house and in this town. So, so it's the sacrifice, to, to recap, it's the sacrifice of confession, it's the sacrifices of thankfulness and of surrender that lead to a hospitable church for God to dwell in. A door to Eden opens up for unsuspecting coworkers and family members and roommates when we choose to make those sacrifices. So, so here's, here's the questions. Here are the questions for a room full of priests. Am I confessing my sin and confessing my righteousness? Am am I thankful for what I see, even as little as it could be? Am I surrendered like I have one project and it's his project? These are questions to ask. These are why the church? We're the ones, out of all of the people across the globe, we're the ones who ask those questions. Now, I I just want to say a few things um, that are Saints Hill specific, almost like some housekeeping stuff, because I know I don't need to sell most of you guys on revival. Most of you guys are like, yes, I'm in, don't need to be sold, already sold, I want revival. Um, So I want to talk about how we steward the revival that we are seeing here. Um, And and so I want to talk a little bit about the family dance of hosting his presence, (laughs) okay? The family dance of hosting his presence. There is a unique dance that needs to take place in in a house, in a church of revival hungry people. Um, we, gotta, we, we not only need to hold one another accountable to making those spiritual sacrifices, um, but also hold each other accountable to not get hung up on the how of revival. 
okay? So I sense this for our church. Now, if you're here and you're like, just like, can you hear from God? Maybe I could hear from God. I'm not sure if I hear from God. Look, you can hear from God. There's another message for that. But I'm going to address people who are like, you're hearing from God all the time. Okay, so this is for you. I know this is a good number of you guys uh, in this house. There are some of you who are a part of this church, and you came from an environment or you came from a church where you were the weird one. And you were the one who hears from God, and you were the one who wanted revival, and you're the one who believes in the Spirit's activity, okay? And because of your isolation in that environment, your whole relationship with the church is sort of like a prophet from the outside, a man of the desert coming to tell the church messages but knowing they're never gonna listen. And I guess what I wanna say to you is it's just different here, (laughs) okay? It's just different. Like, you don't have to be an outsider. (laughs) There's people to your right and to your left who are also hearing from God and who are also attempting to discern what the mind of Christ is for their lives and for the lives of people around them, okay? So not only that, but the leadership of this church, myself, the elders, our staff, deacons, uh, we're prophetic. <laughs> and, and, and what I mean by that is that we're at least attempting to listen, okay? And, and we're, we're doing our best to discern in a communal way what God is saying for our time and place. Majority of our time in our elder meetings and staff meetings is spent in prayer and listening and weighing words for one another and for the church. Like majority of the time. Okay, so um, if you hear from God, you're like, I hear from God. Great, I believe it. Uh, Welcome home. (laughs) Welcome home to you. But know that we're gonna discern together and that one person doesn't have the corner market on hearing. Okay? (laughs) Some of you are like, I don't know about that. Uh, (laughs) Look, there is this, um, there is a dance of listening and risking and learning together. Okay? And it's beautiful. It's called being the church. It's the joy of us walking with God. What an incredible privilege. So, so here's the thing. Sometimes you're going to hear, but you're not going to hear all of it. And so we need to test within community, and there's going to be things discerned within community. Sometimes you're going to risk, but it wasn't the right risk. You're going to go walk up to somebody, and you're going to share a word with them, and they're going to be like, nope. What are you doing right now? That's okay. This is the laboratory. <laughs> Like, this has to be a grace place where risk is encouraged, okay? So somebody may come up to you and they may give you a word and you're like, absolutely not. That's okay. Encourage them for at least taking a risk. It's a beautiful thing, right? It's the great dance. So we all want revival. We want to host God well, and, and there, but there is unity of the spirit to be maintained. And I think we need to stay accountable to the sacrifices of confession, surrender, and gratitude over... I heard this, and you better do it if you want to see revival. Okay, okay. Now, um, to end, I, I want to I leave you with a little bit of inspiration uh, as we end. Uh, I, I feel like this message in some regards is like a coming back to our original vision of like why we planted the church. We planted for revival. This is, this is like a heart message, a life message of this church. And I want to inspire you a bit with a story of revival that has deeply, deeply influenced the planting of this church, and that's Revival in the Hebrides. Anybody ever read this book? A couple of people? Okay, um, I would recommend, like right now, go, not right now, after this, after. Go on Amazon, get this book. It's an incredible book. It tells the story of this uh, revival that took place in the 1940s on these remote Scottish islands called the Hebrides. 
And I want you to close your eyes. I want you to kind of go there with me and imagine what this was like. Um, on one of these islands in the 1940s, remote, you know, podunk, if you will, uh, like farming communities, there were these two old women. Uh, one of them was 84, the other one was 82. One of them was blind, and the other one had such bad arthritis that she couldn't attend church. And so they were so greatly burdened because of the state of their own parish, because of the state of their island, uh, that no, not one young person was attending church. So they decided that they would pray twice a week from 10 p.m. to 3 or 4 a.m. in their small little cottage together, these two old 80-year-old sisters. Now, one night, one of the sisters had a vision of her church crowded with young people. Oh, she must have longed for it so. And in the pulpit was a minister that she didn't recognize. She didn't know who this person was. And so they began to pray for this to happen. They said, God, they petitioned him, God, would you bring about this, a renewal of young people in our church? And whoever this person is, would you bring this person? Well, a few weeks go by, and lo and behold, the man that she saw in the vision showed up on the island. And his name was Duncan Campbell. Here's a photo. You can open your eyes for this. Here's a photo of Duncan Campbell and the two old women who had prayed for him. Really powerful. And he was there to do a speaking tour in a number of other churches in the area. And when he met the sisters, um, I want to read from this book. Here is what happened that first night from his perspective. Uh, This is him writing, Duncan Campbell. They they turned to me and they said, "Um, I know, Mr. Campbell, that you are very tired. You've been traveling all day by train to begin with and then by steamer. And I'm sure that you're ready for your supper and ready for your bed, but I wonder if you would be prepared to address a meeting in the parish church at nine o'clock tonight on our way home. It will be a short meeting, and then we will make, uh, then, then we will make you, uh, you know, I, there, it's a word I don't know. Then we're gonna make you supper, essentially, is what they said. And your bed, Scottish, I don't, I don't know Scottish. Uh, and your bed, and you can rest until tomorrow evening. Well, it will interest you to know that I never got that supper. We got to the church at about a quarter to nine to find 300 people gathered. These are, I mean, these are remote islands. These are like, it's amazing. I would say about 300 people. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting. Sometimes Jake and I look at each other, we're like, that was a good meeting. Uh... A sense of God, a consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church, uh, I would say, to about a quarter to 11. A two-hour meeting. That was nothing in Lewis, (laughs) the island that they're on. They apparently had long meetings. Now, pay attention. Just as I'm walking down the aisle with this young deacon who read the psalm in the barn, something he references from earlier, He suddenly stood in the aisle and looking up to the heavens, he said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on this thirsty ground and floods upon this dry land. You can't fail us. And standing beside him, I found myself in the presence of a man who appeared to know God better than I did. My dear people, we have got to be honest. And I said, here's a young man who knows God in a way that perhaps I do not. He speaks to God in in a way that Could I speak to him that way? 
Soon he is on his knees in the aisle, and he's still praying. And then he falls into a trance again. Just then the door opened. It's now 11 o'clock. The door of the church opens, and a local blacksmith comes into the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. We were praying that God would pour water on thirsty ground and floods on dry land, and listen, he's done it. When I went to the door of the church, I saw another congregation of approximately 600 people. 600 people. Where did they come from? What had happened? I believe that very night God swept in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Ghost, and what happened in the early days of the apostles was now happening in this parish on this island. Over a hundred, this is what happened, over a hundred young people were at the dance in the parish hall. They weren't thinking of God or eternity. (laughs) God was not in any of their thoughts. They were there to have a good night when suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance. The music ceased, and in a matter of minutes, the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from a plague, and they made for the church. And they were now standing outside. Oh, yes, they saw lights in the church. That was a house of God, and they were going to it, and they went. Men and women who had gone to bed rose, dressed, and made for the church. Nothing in the way of publicity, no mention of a special effort, except an announcement from the pulpit on the Sabbath that a certain man was going to be conducting a series of meetings in the parish. But God took the situation in hand. He became his own publicity agent. A hunger and a thirst gripped the people. 600 of them are now with the church, standing outside. The meeting continued until four o'clock in the morning. I couldn't tell you how many were saved that night, but of this I am sure and certain that at least five young men were saved in that church that night and are today ministers of the Church of Scotland. Having gone through university and college, they are now ministers. They were born again in that meeting. That's just the first night. Here's what some others said. There was a laborer who's mentioned in this book who says this, the grass beneath my feet and the rocks around me seem to cry, flee to Christ for refuge. At the gathering, there was another gathering, there was a woman named Mary Peckham who said, it seemed as if heaven was bending down over my soul and that I would soon be taken up to be with the Lord. What a glorious atmosphere. Catherine Campbell, another person who experienced this, she said, I didn't care who was around me that night. I came to Christ. It was heaven on earth. Everything was made new. Do you want that? I think we're beginning to see this. Um, Even testimonies from the past three weeks, I don't have time to tell you all the stories, but just briefly, we've seen back pain uh, healed, uh, intense back pain healed. We've seen baptisms of unlikely people. We've seen emotional trauma being healed. We've seen mindsets getting completely changed and rearranged. We've seen courage in the face of cultural pressure. Worship times flooded with his presence. So here's my charge to us, why not more? (laughs) And why not now? This is why we planted. This is why why the church. So that we can make the spiritual sacrifices that host him well and return our town to Eden. Let's all stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.